You can turn in your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. We'll start in verse 10 and go down to verse 15, I think, today. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother, brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Let's pray. Father, there are times that when we come to your word, that, Lord, we have a choice to make, that we can walk in obedience or we can walk in rebellion. And, Lord, I sense this morning, even in my own heart, that, God, this passage is really easy to neglect So, Lord, by your spirit, for your glory, would you help us now to apply this word to our hearts? That hatred would not even be named among our our gathering, among our faith family. May we be a faith family that is marked by love. And God, when the world sees us, may they see what you said of us, that they will know us by our love. May you do that in us. May you form that in us here this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. The title for today's message is simply The Command of Love. Seems simple enough. Last week, I just want to review real quick. We we talked about how God's power over our lives has been, I'm sorry, sin's power over our lives has been broken. And though the presence of sin remains, we, by walking in obedience through the Spirit, are transformed. But this week, as as John kind of said in in verse 10, he's kind of redirecting or changing directions a little bit when he says, nor does the one who who does not love his brethren. So he's bringing up a new topic for us today. So if you're taking notes, and if you want to remember anything from today, remember this. Since loving our brothers shows that we are born of God, we must love our brothers and sisters, and so prove that we have passed from death to life. So if I were to ask you, maybe consider with me for a second, if I were to ask you, what does hatred look like in the life of the church? I wonder what would come to your mind. 
Depending on what your background has been or what you've experienced, maybe you think about it's irate yelling at one another. Or maybe it's a cold and calculated indifference toward another. Or maybe for some it would be still smiles and handshakes, but hatred bubbling up on the inside. And I think what John's doing here in these verses, he's he's doing something very spectacular. He's giving us a negative example so that we can understand truly what is right and what is true. So I think for us to understand what correctly, what we understand about love within a church community, we must consider what hatred would look like as well. We we can't just consider love. We have to look at the inverse, the, the, the negative of it. And that's what John's doing for us today. So the command is simple. Hear it, hear it again in verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. We've heard this before. It's chapter 2. He says the same thing, that we should love one another. So the command is simple, loving one another. If you're taking notes, it's loving one another, the command. Very simple. It's not hard, not complicated. First John is, I love First John for that reason. It's not complicated, but it is hard. <laughs> Okay? So it's not complicated, but it is difficult. And John is contrasting in this section. He's, he's making a turn. Last week we saw sin and righteousness. This week we're turning and we're looking at love and hatred in the body. And, and again, we can't hear this command apart from hearing the Lord Jesus' command. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this People will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This new commandment for the Apostle John is not new. It's something very old. It's the benchmark that the community has been founded on. It's the foundation. It's the very cornerstone that this community rests on. And now he's going to contrast it. And he's going to show us what hatred would look like in the community. What's something that that is literally eating out the foundation, potentially, or could eat out the foundation of this gathering. Listen to what he goes on to describe. He says in verse 12, Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. It's a pretty bleak picture. And what I want you to see is the origins of hatred. We saw this last week a little bit that we know ultimately the origins are of the devil, but we want you to, he gives an example, a concrete example of a person in Cain, and we're going to look at the origins of hatred. And it's hatred expressed in the brotherhood. And by the way, anytime you hear me say the brotherhood, just so we're clear, I also mean sisters too. It's just when the Bible uses brothers, I just say brothers, okay? So we're saying brothers and sisters in this way. So John reminds them of the command and then immediately gives them the photo negative of what this command doesn't look like, how not to do it. So turn with me real quick to Genesis 4. So we're going to camp out there for a little while just so we can understand in context what is he talking about. Genesis 4 And we'll go down to verse 10, I think we will there. And this is, as you're turning there, this is the only direct Old Testament reference in 1 John. And I find that's interesting because he's he's making a very, very uh, stark point. And he doesn't mince, mince, uh, the person he uses is pretty stark in my mind. In Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1, we'll look there and then we'll turn back to 1 John. 
So he references, he says, we should not be like Cain. Okay, well, most of us know who Cain is, but let's get the story in mind. So Genesis 4, 1 through 12, or 1 through 2. So now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Now there's a lot happening here, but just remember where they just have come from. They just were expelled from the garden. Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden, but we haven't seen sin's ugly effects yet. This is the first picture, the very first picture of hatred in the Bible, in this sense. And what it is expressed as is grotesque. When spiritual death rears its ugly head, I love what Matthew Henry says. He says, sin indulged knows no bounds. Sin indulged knows no bounds. And we're about to see it here in verse 2. Now Abel... Genesis 4. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but, T- but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Now notice in verses 3 and 4, it says that what we shouldn't do is think, oh, Cain brought of the ground, of like the harvest, and that was bad. And Abel brought of an animal, and that was good. That's not how we should view this. Notice the words, and and the text brings it out very clearly. It says in verse 4, Cain just brought an offering, just a normal, everyday offering. But Abel brought the firstborn. Notice, so, so Cain's just being like, okay, I'll just grab whatever I have here, and I'll go offer this to the Lord. Abel's saying, no, 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 I'm going to give of the firstborn firstborn, the best that I have, I'm going to take. So notice, notice that kind of distinction there. And it says the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance or his face fell. Now we should be clear at this point too. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was not given and there's been so much discussion about Cain and Abel and the, what is going on here. There's no sacrificial system, but here they are sacrificing to God. How did they know? We don't know. We don't know any of those things. But what we see from the New Testament is Hebrews that says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So there's the real distinction. We could, we could sit and discuss, well, like, what, what is going on here? That's the real distinction. Abel offered his by faith. Cain did not. That's, that's what it boils down to. And listen to what the Lord says to Cain. Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fell? Notice the way, if you contrast this to verse chapter 3, I think it's really interesting. When Satan asks a question of them, he's trying to tempt them. But when the Lord asks a question, he's seeking to change his heart. And he's saying, why? Why are you like this, Cain? Why are you angry? And he goes on and he says, if you do well, verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now in the NKJV, it says the sin lies at the door, just like it's like a lying dog. But in the ESV, I think it's helpful. It's bringing out the, the animalistic, the, the beast-like quality. It says that sin is crouching at his door, like a beast, like a lion. The same, same word. 
Look at even how it's portrayed in verse 7. He says, will you not be accepted if you do good? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching, looking to devour you. But listen to what Cain does. Rather than responding, rather than hearing the question and saying, you know what, Lord, I will offer by faith. You are the judge. This is what he does. In verse 8, now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against, his, against Abel, his brother, and killed him. When we see things like this in the Bible, we ought not take the position to say, I've heard this story a hundred times before. This is tragic. We've, we've just exited the garden, and now we have a brother kill his other brother. And then listen to what he says. Then the Lord said to Cain, in the same way he talks to Adam, where is, your, where is Abel, your brother? Verse 9, he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And just like Adam in the garden, God probes and he asks him, and you know what Cain does? He lies. He says, am I, am I really my brother's keeper? And the answer from the Lord, though he doesn't answer him, should have been, yes, actually you are your brother's keeper. The Lord goes on and he says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Adam and Eve leave the garden and sin has not only followed them, it has begun to reap havoc in this next generation. Murder, which Cain does to his brother, is the lowest relational level imaginable. And it's the level by which the devil himself resides. And you may say, well, Daniel, okay, that's great. I've never murdered anybody, so I don't know what this has to do with me. Well, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says something that we have a choice. I think we have a couple of choices when we come to a text, like I want to point out to us. The first choice, as believing Christians, is to say, we can diminish it and say, well, that's not really what it means. It's not that serious. He's, he's, he's just being <laughs> allegorical or whatever. Or we can choose to believe what it says and to repent, unlike Cain. Listen to what the Lord Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder your brother. You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in, in danger of judgment. But listen to what Jesus says. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now we can, like I said, we can take a couple of the options. We can say, that's not really what he means. It's allegorical or whatever. And, or we could say, you know what? This is exactly what the Lord Jesus is saying. That when we are angry with our brother, and we say, you fool, that we are in danger of hellfire. And sin, just like it crouched at Cain's door, is crouching at our door. And Cain, in Genesis 4, does not recognize the sin he just committed. And God asks him the question, or he asks God the question, am I my brother's keeper? And in fact, the answer would have been yes. Yes, you actually are your brother's keeper. Yes, actually you are responsible for your brother. And I have heard so many times in our individualist, individualistic post-truth culture, who are you to judge me? 
Who, who are you? Who are you to step into my life and ask me questions about these things? You ask a person how they're doing, and the response is that you're being too nosy into their lives. They respond with, it's none of your business. Where in fact, if you're a part of the church, it is our business. This is one of the tangible ways in which we love our brothers. And I fear too often, we hear, we see this story from Cain, and then we see this story from what Jesus says, and we say, oh, he doesn't really mean that. He doesn't really mean that when we say that of a brother or a sister or even a neighbor, that that's, that's a reality. He doesn't mean that. Oh, friends, he means that. And what it, what it means, there's an option for us. We can either reject it and say, nah, I'm, I'm not good with that, Jesus. Or what we say is, ah, I'm, I'm my own person. I live in an individualistic culture. Or we love our brothers. Because unlike Cain, we are our brother's keepers. We are the ones who are called to look out for one another. But listen to John's analysis. Go back to, real quick to 1 John, and I, I know I'm flipping around a bunch, but it's important we understand it in context what he's saying when he says this, and it's an important reference. Go back real quick to 1 John. And he asks the question, John does, why did he murder him? And John argues that Cain did this for the same reason that we have just seen above. The fact that, in the, in the previous sermon, the fact that he was a child of the devil meant that Cain would act according to his nature. So the nature, we're going to look at the nature of love and hatred. The nature of love and hatred. The unrighteous hating the righteous. Now, John is arguing here in verse 12, if you're looking in your Bible, verse 12, he says, and we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and who murdered his brother. And he asks the question, why did he murder him? Cain, being a prototype of the prince of this world, murders his brother. And I want to ask you a question, because I hear this oftentimes put forward, not, not from people in the church, oftentimes from people outside of the church, but they, they say that, ah, you know, people are really only just a, a product of their upbringing. That's what they'll say. But I want you to notice something. Notice, so we're looking at the nature of love and hatred. I want us to look at the context of it. Nature and nurture, I'm calling it. Nature and nurture. Cain and Abel had the same parents. They grew up in the same household. They had the same nurture their whole lives. So if you're a person who believes that just being raised has a big influence on us, the question is, how does Cain and Abel fit into that paradigm for you? They both grew up in the same household. They both grew up with the same parents. Cain and Abel even were offering sacrifices to God. So being partaking in a religious service does nothing for you, necessarily. So if you think that just being a part of a church will somehow make you holy, I want to remind you it won't. So nature and nurture, they don't do anything in that sense. Now hear me, I'm not throwing out nature and nurture. They do have effects, but they don't have ultimate effects, and that's the point. But then look at the content. What comes out of the content? The content of the context. And it's hatred began in the heart. They both participated in the same actions. They both brought sacrifices. They both had problems 
The, the problem of the, is the actions that don't validate the heart. So they both were coming, they both were offering, and both, both responded entirely differently. Cain would have initially passed John's first outward test. Think about this. This is a scary reality. You know that last test we talked about last week of sin versus righteousness? You know Cain would have passed that test? He would have outwardly been righteous. He was offering sacrifices. But it's at this test that John gives, the test of love, that's the fundamental difference between Cain and Abel. Cain's deeds were evil and Abel's were righteous. And John is essentially saying that the reason Cain killed his brother is out of jealousy. He was jealous that Abel was accepted and he was not. And the first murder recorded in the Bible was caused by hatred of righteousness, which is where John then gives his point. This is it for us. And John's point is this in verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers or sisters, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. John is saying, don't be shocked. Don't marvel. Don't be confused when the world around you hates you. You want to know why? Because it has always hated God and his purposes. It actually would be more helpful to understand him saying, stop being surprised. Don't be surprised when the world and all its systems are in opposition to God and it hates you. Don't be surprised when it hates you. We look upon Cain and what he did to his brother and we are appalled and we should be. But what he's saying is the embryonic seed of hatred begins into form in the heart of man. And we should not be surprised when it grows into murder because sin indulged knows no bounds. I would argue, actually, that the reason murder is not a bigger deal in our culture is because people are afraid of the consequences. If you removed the governmental consequences upon murder, there would be murder every single day. The consequences create fear of being arrested and humiliated, the penalties of the law. And so if you just ask the question, how often are people mad at one another, or how often do they hate one another, oh my goodness, there'd be murder every single day. I love what Jim Boyce, he says, he says this, he says, when the world, like Cain, comes face to face with reality and truth, it can make only one of two decisions, repent and change, or destroy the one who's exposing it. You know, we're about to see this, I think. If Roe versus Wade, and this is not a political topic, just so we're 100% clear, is overturned, you will see people say things of you that are very hateful. And in that moment, may I warn you, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. If it's overturned, may it be, Lord. If it's overturned, they will hate you. And then when they do, don't be like, oh, Look how awful this used to be. It used to be better. No. They have always hated you. It could be the persecution of our faith that does not happen maybe even in dramatic ways. Maybe, maybe it will happen in dramatic ways, but maybe it won't. It could be the simple look someone gives you when you express you attend a certain church. It could be the isolation you feel when others exclude you because you don't laugh at their dirty jokes or listen to their ugly gossip. 
It can be the rejection you feel when you try to reconcile with others and they spit in your face. It can be the feelings of being shunned for standing up for what is right. And John's response is, don't be surprised. Every single time I tell somebody I'm a pastor, they look at me and they say, that's nice. And they never tell me the truth ever again. And the reason is, and I shouldn't be surprised by that. I'm surprised often by that. I shouldn't be. Don't be surprised. Because the world hates us. (laughs) And we shouldn't be surprised. So stop being surprised. But John now moves, he's going to make a movement in verses from 11 and 12 into verses, or 11, 12 and 13 into verses 14 and 15. And he says the reason, or the evidence that for the believer, the outworked consequences for the believer so that he knows that he's passed from death to life. Listen to what he says in verses 14 and 15. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He goes on in verse 14. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So this next section is called From Death to Life. From Death to Life. The evidence for the believer. And John can assert that we know, not with with waveringness, but we know with certainty that we've passed from death to life. When? When love and life are what comes forth from us. In this section, I'm calling it life brings forth love. So life that's been changed in the heart pours forth love. It precedes it, as we've seen. And listen to what he says. We know that we have passed out of death into life. And John is saying, he's making an implication here, if you haven't caught it, let me point it out to you. John is assuming that we as believers know that a person does not begin in a position of life. Life is not the starting place for humanity. The same word that's used here for passing over is the same word that Jesus uses in John 5. When he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in his heart, him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We could go on there, but I'll spare you from that. But we passed from death to life. So death is the starting point, and life is where we're being transferred to. The passing refers to a changing of state from one state to another. It's a transitioning from being dead to being made alive. And he's directly making an implication for the nature of sin. Here's the secular lie, and I've said it before. I just want to say it again because it's so pervasive. The secular lie is that humanity is neutral. The secular lie is that humanity is neutral. But what John is showing us here is there is no neutrality. You're either abiding in the position of death or you're abiding in the position of life. I love what Jim Boyce, he goes on and says, no one grows into Christianity. In other words, Christianity is a divine creation or recreation by which God of his own free will plants spiritual life within a person who otherwise is dead spiritually. 
I love, there's, there's an example I heard from Spurgeon, and I really appreciate it. Spurgeon's kind of like uh, J.I. Packer. If you ever have questions, go see what Spurgeon says on the matter. He's really good. But he, he quips about uh, the passing from death to life, and he says that it's kind of like when a person is saved from drowning. He said there's an experience that happens for someone who's drowning, supposedly. I, don't, I, I didn't look in it for any scientific evidence on this, but there's a, there's a myth, if you would say, that when a person is drowning, they actually have a sensation of numbness or like a pleasing sensation almost. But what happens is when a person is drawn out of the water and when they start to get air again into their lungs, what's it do? It becomes deathly painful. It's a sign not of death, but of life. His arms and his legs begin to tingle. His chest begins to ache with pain. And the pain of life returning to him feels dreadful. And that's the position of the Christian. The rest of this world, if they feel numb to the hatred and the death that they live in, it's that way by, by nature. They're numb to it. But the Christian, when they start to see the hatred that bubbles up from within them, it hurts. It literally tingles like someone getting air back into the lungs that were once filled with water. And he says, if today you feel that pain of life circulating in you, rejoice. The question is not if we will struggle to hate our brothers. The question is we will struggle, but by God's grace in Christ Jesus, we turn from it. We're not numb to it any longer. We actually repent and we turn from it and God gives us life. Now there's a reason John gives us for this. For how we, can, how we can know this. He says, how do we know? It's that second point of loving the brethren. He says, we know, verse 14, that we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we love the brethren. Or the sisterin. Brothers and sisters. He says that it's because we love our brothers and sisters that we can be assured that we pass from death to life. Now I want to be clear about something. The love here he's referring to is not a feeling. It actually has nothing to do with feelings. It has everything to do about action. Verse 16, just look down there real quick with me. By this we know love. Notice what it doesn't say. By this we know love. God felt a certain way toward us. It doesn't say that. It says that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So this is a very tangible, very deed-oriented love. This is not, has nothing to do with feelings. It has everything to do with action. So this is the good news for you if you don't have good feelings towards your brothers or sisters. What matters here is a decision to love with word and deed. It's a decision not to ignore with indifference, but to actually love in word and deed. Primarily, love of a Christian is for their brother and sister. This is where Christian love starts. Now I want to talk about an implication of this that is a, I would call it a roadblock to loving the brethren, is there's a temptation to equate love with making other people happy. We may be tempted to think, if I speak the truth in love to them, and they don't respond gleefully or jubilant reception, then I've failed. 
But let me assert to you that to equate love with making other people happy, it's slavery. That will be slavery for you. Beneath my efforts to love other people, there is a self that says, please love me. And it looks, it looks like morality on the outside, but it is driven by an utterly corrupt selfishness on the inside. You will displease people if you're going to love them well. To love people who are sinful, you will say no to them, and you will disappoint them. So do you see how radically different the love of the Christian is for the love of the world? The love of the world just says, do whatever you want. Do whatever makes you feel happy. Don't, don't oppress that person. Don't tell them they're wrong. No, 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 no. We must not love our brothers and sisters for our own happiness or for their own happiness. Or better, let me put it another way, more ultimately, we should love them for their ultimate happiness in Christ. Let that be the measure by which we love our brothers. Christ Jesus died for us. He was risen from the dead. Not for our happiness in worldly things, but our happiness in him. If we measure our love for one another by their response or our feeling toward them, we will never love anyone. We will never love anyone. And I've used this quote before, but I want to use it again because I think it's so helpful. The opposite of love is not hate, friends. It's indifference, okay? And I think this is, this is what's often seen in the church. It's not irately yelling at one another. It's indifference. And brothers and sisters, we must love so that we prove that we have passed from death to life. Why? So that we may be assured that we're children of God. But John goes on and he says, now he gives the opposite. He goes on and he says, he who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. For John, the person who does not love his brother still in fact resides in death. Life has not been given to him because his heart reflects a posture of hatred. So this last section is hatred and murder. Hatred and murder. Notice what he says again in verse uh, 15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life. Okay, so I just said, I literally just said this, that we should just look at the scriptures and then try to explain ourselves out of them. (laughs) But now I'm about to try to do that. So the question is, is John saying that anyone here who has ever murdered someone, you're saying they can't have eternal life? That's what it, it, it... Reading could, could interpret it. And if that's the case, it would remove people like um, the Apostle Paul. Okay, so that's not what he means. He doesn't mean that someone who has murdered somebody is, is removed from eternal life and could never have eternal life abiding in him. That cannot, logically, cannot be what the text is teaching. But Christians are not saying that hatred and murder, just so we're clear, what, what he's trying to bring forward here is not just murder in the murderous sense. What he's trying to show is that hatred is the same as murder. 
And he's saying that hatred, which can abide in the Christian, does not, it should not abide in him. Which is why it's equivalent, it's not equivalent in action, just so we're clear. Hatred is not equivalent in action to murder, but it's equivalent in heart. And what John is getting at here is that the heart of murder and the heart of hatred are the exact same. Listen again to what Jesus says in, in Matthew five twenty two. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Jesus is saying that the true murderer is what is conceived in the heart. To hate a brother and sister is on the same heart posture as murder. And by God's standard, to hate someone from the heart is as unlawful as a murderer. Hatred is the wish that another person is no longer there anymore. So we get all the way down to this, and the question is, is there any hope? Because at some level, we've, this text has pinned us in a corner, and it asks, is there hatred in your heart? Is there hope? And John would say, yeah, there is hope. That unlike Cain, unlike this world, when it sees the truth and it responds poorly, it responds in murder, he's saying we can repent. We can turn from it. He says in verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Let me put it in another, another way. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for murderers and hateful, hateful and wicked people. He laid down his life for those people. And we, we, the hateful, wicked, murderous people, ought to lay down our lives for other hateful, wicked brothers and sisters. The church is not a cleaned up, pretty picture. But she's clean because of Christ and because of his word and because of his work. So if there's any hatred in you this morning, there's hope. You can turn from it. You can come back to Christ and and not just apologize, but you can repent. You You can seek his forgiveness and you can turn away from it. Praise be to God. Because every other person in this world that is numb, that is dead still in their sins, is just numb to these things. Hatred happens every day. It's going to happen to you today. You're going to, you're going to feel a tendency to hate another person, and in that moment, you can turn from it. And you cannot be surprised when other people hate you because you tell them the truth. I want us to give us a time of response. And in our time of response, I just want us to consider, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give you just the last words of Jesus, just for you to consider your time of response. Matthew five twenty two, he says, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Take just a minute and consider these words. 
and consider if there's any way that you need to repent today. Father, like I said at the beginning, I just feel like this text is hard. It's really difficult. It's easy to understand. It's difficult to live out. And I pray, God, by your grace, through your spirit, through your word, grant us as your people to never live with hatred toward our brothers and sisters, toward indifference toward them. But in every way, in word, in action, in deed, that we would love our brothers and sisters. God, you have put your spirit within us and those who are yours, Lord, life will produce love. So Lord, rather than just trying to focus on loving our brothers, I pray, God, that you would help us to focus on the life that you have given us and the the love that you have shed on us that we may shed that to our brothers and sisters. Lord, we are our brother's keeper. Help us to live like it this week. And God, if we see roots of sin and hatred By your grace, would you give us your mercy to cut them off? Oh, that you would do that in us. That when people come in these doors, when they see us as your church, they would see us as a people who love radically. And they would be drawn to you. Do that, I pray, in us, we ask. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this concludes our our service time. Um, We're going to be having Sunday school directly after, so...